to the panel, The Pacific Swell, The Rise of BC's Blue Economy. This session is part of the third annual Rising Economy Conference, which is produced by the South Island Prosperity Partnership. The conference brings us together to talk about key issues affecting our region, cut through the noise, and find clarity about the future of where we live and work. We would like to acknowledge with respect that we are on the tra- traditional territories of the, of the Salish and Coast Salish peoples who lived in this area for thousands of years. My name is Dave Obi. I'm the editor and publisher of the Times Colonist, which has been a vital part of this community for 164 years. But all that history doesn't mean much these days, not with so many changes and challenges sweeping through the economy. Like every other business, we're continually reinventing ourselves and looking for new opportunities. Every business needs to think like a startup these days. Every business needs to contribute to the rising economy. That is why we are proud to support this rising economy conference. And now it's my pleasure to introduce you to Don Grant, CEO of the Ocean Startup Project. As a proud Atlantic Canadian and partner of Leeway Marine, Don is no stranger to the blue economy. As CEO of the Ocean Startup Project, he steers various activities designed to grow the quantity and quality of startups contributing to Canada's ocean economy, from the Atlantic to here on the Pacific. Over to you, Don. Thanks so much, Dave, uh, and and thanks, folks, for joining us. I couldn't be more excited about this conversation. I get the I have the pleasure of of uh, moderating this all star cast that we brought together to talk about the rise of BC's uh, blue economy. And for me, I live and breathe this stuff, so I get to see what is happening across this country and all the momentum that exists. And I'm hoping that we're be, we'll be able to translate that for you folks today and, and you'll get a sense of how much activity is happening in this space and all of the opportunity that exists in this blue economy. So I don't want to do too much talking because I have these four fantastic panelists. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask them to come on and introduce themselves and talk a little bit about what they do in the blue economy, what their relevance to this is. And then we're going to get into some questions. So, uh, Kendra, I think I'll start with you. If you would come on and just introduce yourself, talk a little bit about the super cluster and um, and then we'll move on from there. Awesome. So, uh Kendra McDonald, and I am the CEO of Canada's Ocean Supercluster. I can't see myself, so I don't know if I did come on or not, but I tried. Um, and I, I am in San Diego and am under the flight path, so I apologize because I'm going to imagine there's going to be a plane going by almost every single time I go to speak. Um, but yeah, so very quickly, Supercluster, over 500 members, 70 projects, $350 million in project value, and we're focused on growing the blue economy for Canada. Thanks, Kendra. Scott Beatty, over to you. Tell us a little bit about you and Marine Labs. Thanks, Don. Hey, everybody. I'm Scott Beatty. I'm the CEO of Marine Labs. Um, I can set the stage a little bit. So um, Canada has the longest coastline in the world, but there is about 40 to 50 navigation weather buoys um, that are meant to help marine safety. But uh, that um, because of that number, that's basically one buoy for every thousand kilometers of coast. So that leaves huge regions exposed to navigational risk. So I've formed Marine Labs to try and change that. And so we've commercialized new technology that can push that number into the thousands. 
Um, and so we're a bunch of uh, graduates from University of Victoria and uh, various other um, groups, technicians, and now we're getting into sales and starting to um, develop and roll out our technology along different coastlines in different countries. Um, so excited to be here and uh, looking forward to some hard questions, Don. We don't know about that, but what I would say is that Scott Beatty uh, is as a startup guy myself and, and trying to draw out more startups, Scott Beatty is one of my favorite entrepreneurs in this country. He, uh, he is exactly what we're trying to build more of. And so excited to have him here and hear what he has to say. Jessica, I'm coming over to you. Um, could you introduce yourself and talk a little bit about ONC? Sure. Thanks, Don. Uh, Jessica Stigant, I'm the Associate Director of Government Relations and Strategic Partnerships at Ocean Networks Canada. And Ocean Networks Canada is uh, Canada's largest major science initiative. <clears throat> we are a not-for-profit based at the University of Victoria, and we operate large ocean observatories um, for science mainly, but also for society and industry. And so we use fiber optic cable that provides power and internet connection to thousands of sensors, anything you think of that you can measure in the ocean, we measure it. Um, and all of this, these data that are collected from the sensors are, um, are stored and provided through our Oceans 3.0 data management system. So we have, uh, I think, 1.5 petabytes of data that's all open sourced and almost 30,000 users to date that use these data. So thanks so much. I don't know what a petabyte is, but it sounds like <laughs> a lot to me, Jessica. So All I know is when I talk to people who do data, their their mouths drop. So I'm assuming okay. it's a lot. <laughs> there we go. There we go. That's good. And last but not least, and probably needs no introduction, uh, Emily. Well, thank you, Don. Um, so such a pleasure to be here. Uh, my name is Emily DeRosenroll. Um, and, uh, Dave was speaking of startups. I feel like we're, we're sort of building our own startup. So I, I have, uh, two hats at the moment. I am the CEO of the South Island Prosperity Partnership, which is Greater Victoria's Economic Development Alliance, a partnership of, uh, municipal partners, First Nation partners, post-secondaries, business community, um, philanthropy, business and associations, um, and, and more. Um, and that organization has now um, had the pleasure of being able to be part of really starting this brand new organization called Coast. Uh, the long word, the long way to say it is the Center of Ocean Applied Sustainable Technologies, uh, which um, which I'm happy to sort of give you a quick quick snapshot of. It's uh, we're building with with many of the people actually here on this panel, many others we've been building for the last uh, I'd say about 18 months. Uh, something called Coast, which is here to build a hub for the for the blue economy on the Pacific Coast by supporting entrepreneurs, making bridges between R&D partners, government partners, private sector, large companies that are looking for innovation. So, so much really uh, interesting brand new territory to cover in British Columbia. Um, and we're looking forward to so many partnerships from from the East Coast to West Coast, which is why we're thrilled to, to Don to have you as part of the work as well. Um, and I'll, of course, connect in with the Ocean Supercluster and others from across the country. Um, and I suppose I just like to say that all the hard questions go go over to Scott because he's already put his hand up for the for the really hard, hard ones. 
No problem. I'll, I'll make sure that happens. You know, it's, it's so exciting to see what's happening with coast and, and what that means for, for the blue economy in British Columbia and for Vancouver Island. It's a, it's a wonderful initiative. And I think it's actually gone beyond an initiative and it's becoming a reality, which is even more exciting because it's been a ton of hard work by Emily and her team and a, and a whole group of people on a very, very, dynamic advisory board. So it's so exciting for the blue economy to see what's happening there. Folks, before we get into questions, I understand the blue economy because I live it every day. But what I'd love to do is just level set on what actually the blue economy is. And so I'm going to bring back in Kendra McDonald, who lives and breathes and is doing an amazing job of helping Canada build this blue economy to tell us exactly what the blue economy is. So, uh, Kendra, over to you. Can you just give us a, give us a definition or a rundown on the blue economy and what it means? Uh, sure. So, I mean, there's, we just had a conference here and we're talking about all the different definitions of the blue economy, but the one that I like is the World Bank definition. And so they talk about sustainable use of ocean resources for economic development. So livelihoods, jobs, while maintaining ocean health or health of ocean ecosystems. So that real balance of sustainable use from an economic perspective, uh, while balanced with, with health. And so when you think about sustainable use and all the different ways that we use the ocean, whether that is shipping or aquaculture, we use it, you know, for food, we use it for security, we use it for, you know, there's so many different aspects of. And so the ocean supercluster has it, a bioresources, pharmaceuticals, seaweed conversation, all of those different applications. So it's very, very broad when we talk about the blue economy. Thanks, Kendra. That's so great. Like, this is why I think the blue economy is so well suited for British Columbia, too, because sustainability and regeneration are just part of your vernacular. That is just part of what British Columbia is. And so this concept of trying to build economic development and, and build strong companies, but also be able to make an impact on the planet and the climate, it just aligns so brilliantly with, with British Columbia because the way I look at it is clean tech and is blue tech and blue tech is clean tech. And so there's this beautiful marriage there. And British Columbia is a leader in this country on clean tech and climate tech. So I really feel like blue technology and the blue economy is such a natural fit. So let's get started. Scott, I'm coming to you. I have a, a bit of a bias for entrepreneurs, so you're getting the first question. You've been at this, you've been at this for five years now, five or six years. You started out of University of Victoria building this company. Five years ago, it was probably a very different environment as you're starting out an ocean company. Can you talk about some of the momentum you've seen in the ocean economy and now what we're calling the blue economy in British Columbia since since when you started it? Yeah, for sure. Uh, thanks, Don. Um, so starting a company in, in ocean tech and in, in marine tech and trying to solve bigger problems in industry ends up being challenging because in marine especially, um, there was a sort of traditional approach. It's like, well, what do you mean we should try something different? We always do it this way. And that's kind of what startups face is 
talk to somebody and say, hey, you know, look, we have this technology that could probably change your whole operation and make this more efficient, but the industry has got tradition and their own momentum, and they need to be convinced to take a little leap of faith. And so that's, you know, that's challenging. And so we got, we went through a bit of that. Um, it was sort of before blue economy was a buzzword when we started our company. Um, and um, so now it's great to see so much momentum. Um, some of the government agencies with funding programs that promote innovation, um, government agencies, p- procurement departments that have mandates for innovation now has been very, very helpful. Um, and I think that, you know, things are changing a little bit with the opportunity to align as well as Atlantic Canadian um, agencies and companies and and um, universities have. In BC, we've been a bit more siloed, a little bit more um, that traditional mindset. And so bridging some of these silos is really exciting. So that's what I'm, I think um, Coast is excellent for. And we're super supportive of Coast and want to um, help out as much as we can with that. So I'd say, you know, it's, you got to grind it out. You, if you want to solve problems in the world, you have to elbow your way in a little bit and you have to um, not take no for an answer sometimes. But um, at the end of it, if you're, you know, really passionate and motivated and you have a true solution, then it will happen. Scott, I love that. And uh, and I don't know too many people who are more passionate about what they're doing than you. That is for sure. So, Emily, Scott talked about a few different things and, and some of the momentum that he's seeing. He also talked about breaking down these silos. So talk to us a little bit about Coast, the momentum you're seeing and and what you're trying to do to break down some of those silos to get that collaboration going. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that Scott set it up super well. Like we, we've, we've, he's, he was sort of the original cool before the, there was a buzzword. Um, but, but there's a lot, he's got a lot more company these days. So what we saw is, um, about 18 months ago, or maybe it's two years ago. It's a bit of a, the, the time span in the pandemic is a little bit flat for me. I won't lie. Um, I was all one big zoom day. Um, but sometime during that period, we, we really put together a whole bunch of sort of virtual talks and workshops and started pulling people out to talk about this opportunity. Um, and to see, you know, sort of what kind of support there was and what kind of needs and what gaps there were. And what we found is there was a huge groundswell of support with, with very little, you know, marketing needed, very little sort of, um, real efforts to try to pull people out. It was, it was very much the contrary. It was a lot of people interested and actually, um, you know, it was really cool to see a lot of people from other parts of Canada saying, Hey, BC, you know, you, you're, you've got more going on than you, than you appreciate. Um, and so I think that there's been a larger awareness being built steadily. And it certainly helps that British Columbia, the government is also growing its awareness as well. We have a new ministry now that has a focus on, um, on coastal and oceans and coastal stewardship. So that helps. There's a strong First Nation leadership component here that was very natural for us. And we had a lot of First Nation um, thought leadership and leadership period uh, really at the table as well, both from that sort of ocean uh, monitoring science sort of perspective, um, as Jessica will tell us a lot about. They've got a lot going on with different Indigenous communities. So that was sort of an extension of stewardship of the land that was very natural, but also on the marine side as well. So really a, a huge array of, of interesting opportunities. And then I, picking up on another thing that Scott mentioned was this sort of having to push and disrupt traditional sectors. I think that in our province, and probably Jessica will say across Canada, 
ocean and marine has been very much separated. And there's this sort of reputation of having those sort of more um, slower to adopt technology uh, areas in marine, more industrial, um, bit more, I'll call them lumbering. Like the, a lot of the technology hasn't changed in hundreds of years in some respects. Um, but in other respects, everything about, you know, sort of ships, for example, is changing because they're, they're sort of like floating computers in a lot of ways. Uh, so, so things are kind of coming together in a very interesting way where British Columbia already had a lot of natural um, advantages, huge strengths in, in and around what we might call digital economy or clean technology. So a whole bunch of disruptive technologies that now also I think are, are paving the way for, for a lot of disruption that will have an impact across the world. I love that. It, it, yeah, it's so interesting. Kendra, I want to bring you in here just on disruption here and, and what we're talking about and, and that theme of traditional industry and, and trying to find different techniques to, to help modernize or help those traditional industries innovate because that is a huge component of what the supercluster is doing with its technology leadership projects. Can you talk to us a little bit about that and, and what you're seeing from that traditional industry and, and breaking down some of that, uh, those silos and, and, and disrupting things a little bit? Yeah, so I mean, my background is is actually more technology than ocean, and it, it was interesting coming into the ocean sector because while for the last number of years we've talked about digital disruption of media or um, you know the cable companies or the financial sector, or we haven't, it, it seems like a harder um, thing to understand digitalization of the ocean. But that's exactly what's happening, right? So we're bringing robotics to be able to help with safety and get workers off the water. You know, we're bringing autonomy. We're bringing um, remote monitoring in terms of augmented reality and mixed reality. We're bringing blockchain solutions to traceability of food. You know, these are all digital solutions that have been proven out in other sectors, a lot of them. Now, it's a harsher environment. Um, there's all kinds of differences when you're operating in the ocean, but there is a lot of similarity and your comment around clean tech and, and ocean tech, right? So we've got these clean tech solutions and so thinking about how we bring that uh, into or how we connect up. So the land conversation and the ocean conversation. But I think there's a, a natural tendency to think about those traditional roles, traditional workers. And one of the biggest challenges, actually, when we started the cluster that our companies were facing across the board. This is what one of the, the cross-sectoral challenges is workforce. How do you convince people you need the data scientists and you need the uh, artificial intelligence algorithms and you need all those things, but think about the data we're going to generate from the ocean economy, you know, that we're already generating and that we will, if a fully surveyed ocean by 2030, that's a lot of data. So interesting. Yeah. And, and just watching some of these collaborations that are happening with the super cluster and, and large industry and SMEs and startups. It's, it's fascinating to see what's, what's getting turned out. And I think it's going to hold Canada in really good stead as we move forward. You know, we've talked a lot about innovation, but research has such a huge component to play in this blue economy. So Jessica, can you, can you talk about what ONC is doing? how research is really shaping the blue economy as well. And, and I know data is a huge component of what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, I definitely, um, just to come back to Kendra's point, the date, the gaps in the data analytics and data specialists and data stewards, all of those pieces are so required, um, in this day and age with understanding all of the data that we're collecting. Um, but Ocean Network Canada collects the data and then we provide it freely available. And a lot of scientists are kind of shocked by this um, and wonder how we, why aren't we making money off of this? But that's really our requirement from the Canada Foundation for Innovation, which is one of our major uh, funding bodies. Um, And so thousands of scientists can then analyze these data from across the globe. Uh, 50% of our our, um, sci- our users are Canadian, and many of them are scientists from the federal government. So um, I would say that, you know, we operate and maintain and pr- provide these data, and then it's really the science community that then takes these data and, and understands them. And so one of the things I would say that is so important in what we do is the longevity of collecting these data. We've been operating for almost 17 years, and in some of our locations, we have have about 17 years of, of data, worth of data. And so comparing and contrasting year after year, um, this is an area that brings to light the changes in the ocean, and I would say also the opportunities. So, you know, if I could give an example, um, when we were in lockdown, uh, we had a researcher from Dalhousie who looked at our hydrophone data, our sound of the ocean, and he was able to compare and contrast from previous years and realized, yes, indeed, with the lockdown, less shipping traffic and therefore quieter oceans. And why this is important is because we know that noise causes harm to marine mammals, stresses marine mammals. And so now the, it's the companies and the, and the innovators that really need to figure out how do we take these traditional industries that Scott was talking about and change them so that they're quieter. Um, it might be, you know, looking at biofouling products or it might be hydro understanding or, or creating products from hydrophones. And, and Canada has some of the, the best hydrophone companies in the world with Jazzco and Ocean Sonics. Um, it might be vessel architects that are designing these um, vessels to be quieter. So there science, I think, provides the backing and the opportunities that also come out of this blue economy. I love that. And and so, Scott, I want to come to you on that because you, presumably uh, being Dr. Scott Beattie, were a scientist, a researcher uh, at UVic, I believe. And, you know, Marine Labs was born out of that. Can you talk to us a little bit about your science background and how that led you to innovation and and starting a company? Yeah, for sure. Um, so, so I did a PhD in mechanical engineering at UVic and I had an ocean scientist, um, on my, um, committee and they were very clear that, uh, science is not engineering. So we got to be careful there. But, um, basically, uh, 10 years ago today, I was deploying my very first ocean wave energy converter prototype in a tank that was going to go to Newfoundland. Uh, this device was going to go to Newfoundland so I could test it and determine how to design the shape of a wave energy converter for renewable energy. And so I uh, spent many years on that project. And so, yeah, shed a little tear actually seeing the team and the uh, the excitement that happened there. So came from this sort of, hey, let's solve problems. Let's 
And research engineering is extremely challenging. You have to be resourceful. You have to understand all kinds of code and dynamics and hydrodynamics. And um, and my colleagues during that time ended up joining me in the formation of this company later on. So all these relationships that I built in graduate school ended up being extremely useful and valuable uh, in moving forward um, with, uh, with, with solving problems in the world, um, in a smaller company. And, um, you know, we have had ex Ocean Networks Canada people with us. We've had, uh, ex, um, you know, um, other technology companies in Victoria, technology companies in, um, Atlantic Canada that have, uh, joined us. So, um, so yeah, so it feels like a continuum that is definitely intact and we recruit from that, um, continuum. And uh, and then, you know, what's exciting is that building a data company, we get to continue with research. It's just got to be slightly different. But um, an example was collaborating with UVic on the um, extreme rogue wave measurement that we made. Um, that was something that was a real feather in the cap for us from a technology point of view, but also from a contribution to science point of view. And so I think you can do both moving forward. Um, it's not true that you have to just completely focus on um, on industry problems if you want to be a company. You can also solve scientific problems while being in a company. So, so yeah, so it's been great. It's exciting. It's fun. There's a lot of uh, really interesting, challenging problems to solve still. And, uh, and that's what I think helps recruitment for us is, you know, presenting it in a way that, look, we're trying to solve this vast problem. Um, come help us. You've got the skills. You're coming through. Uh, with skills in data analysis and skills in sampling data from the ocean, let's come and let's solve things together. So it's been uh, it's been going well. And so, yeah, so that sort of continuum with um, research has been uh, very, very helpful for us. Yeah, it's it's so great. Like what I love so much is this marriage between science, data and innovation. And I really, truly believe that we are not going to be able to conserve our oceans without innovating. But we're not going to be able to conserve them if we don't have the data and the science behind it in order to figure out where the innovation needs to go in order to protect and conserve those oceans. So it's a really, really dynamic, interesting place to play is this blue economy. Kendra, we've talked a little bit about data here and data, ocean data is talked about at every conference. I'm sure you go to, I'm sure you're asked about it constantly. People are trying to figure out how to monetize the data. The collection of the data is so important so that we understand our oceans, but I think there's a huge opportunity on that monetization of data for good, hopefully. Can you talk to us a little bit about what that looks like in the blue economy and where you think that's heading? I think that was directed to me. Yeah. Yeah, that's to you, Kendra. Yeah. Perfect. Um, yeah. So I'm in San Diego, um, and there was a presentation yesterday by NOAA, which is Ocean Observation um, in the U.S., and I thought they explained it really well. And so they said, look, we produce all of this data, and we provide you know, lots of it is freely available, but we need, um, and the example they gave was, so we are going to provide this coastal resiliency data, but different municipalities have different risk tolerances. They have different questions that they're asking. They have different insurance companies that they're working with. And so there's a really important role for companies to actually help meet those needs at that level, right? So, those that are producing a lot of that data are not necessarily 
able to or wanting to invest in being able to answer those specific questions. And there is a perfect example of a use case where you can monetize that data to be able to meet a need, which is a huge need around all of these communities um, that are going to need to think about their infrastructure and investment in a world where sea level rise is going to be significant. There'll be much more flooding, all of the very unfortunate impacts of climate change. So there's lots of examples like that. But I think that, you know, we companies are are trying to figure it out. The, the number of companies that I hear that want to do data as a service, but I don't think they've quite figured out how to actually make that work. And I think the more that we see open sharing of data, which is a challenge for companies, there's a lot of companies that have, whether you're oil companies, whether you're fisheries companies, there's a, a competitive advantage view of not sharing data. I think that is going to change over the next little while and people will see that I get more value from sharing my data and being able to access other people's data and then thinking about how to do something unique with it versus protecting it for my own purposes because it's just not that valuable for me for that long. There's that plane. There's the plane. There we go. Um, no, I think that's really interesting. I think it's a huge, huge opportunity and, and people like Scott are starting to figure this out and figure out how to collect data and, and, and monetize it for good. And, and that to me seems like a huge opportunity. Emily, is Coast thinking about data at all and, and, and where, where you can take that? Yeah, we have a number of, of partners. Well, we've got a number of uh, members that are, that are deeply involved in that space. We've got two here. Um, uh, but, uh, there's definitely also a number of sort of maybe more on the tech side, um, uh, partners, um, that are interested in exploring how to be get more involved in the ocean sector. So we're definitely seeing some sort of like large technology partners who are, um, still early days that kind of uh, looking at how to explore um, the the sort of the market opportunities. Um, of course, you said data for good. I think that's a, a key piece. Uh, Kendra brought up also like the data governance challenges. And, and I think that's a really, um, there, there's a lot of challenges, but the, the governance piece, um, you see that everywhere in all sort of verticals. There's the, the governance problem is much more difficult than the technology problems. Um, so that's something that, yeah, we're definitely actively um, exploring what would be the ideal role uh, for Coast in terms of helping smooth out some of those those difficulties and, and create a roadmap for at least the Pacific Coast in terms of ocean data. So that's definitely on on um, on the docket. Um, and there's a lot of, I mean, I'd love to hear in particular also Jessica's perspective on the ocean data side because they're they're sort of pioneering it um, and have had so 17 years of history um, doing that. So that's also a really huge asset, of course, for us on the Pacific Coast to be able to draw on this, you know, 1.5 petabytes, I believe it is, a, a monstrously large amount of data. But then we need entrepreneurs, you know, like the Scots of the world to, to start thinking about the, 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 sort of the product market fit. Like what, how are we actually solving problems with this data? And, and then of course, how do we make sure that the, the data can be brought together in some sort of an intelligent way? Who manages it? What is, you know, all of these things are questions. Everyone, I feel like does talk about data an awful lot. Um, and you certainly, can't do anything interesting with other levels of technology like artificial intelligence, machine learning, et cetera. All of that requires data. 
We also know that the ocean is at the forefront of climate change. Um, and so we need to know a lot more. And there's a whole bunch of stuff we don't know. Um, and the, over the last few days, I'm going to go down a bit of a rabbit hole here. But over the last few days, we've been listening to some really interesting speakers like Thomas Homer Dixon, um, who speaks about that sort of intersection between climate change and violent conflict and sort of geopolitical um, uncertainty. And then there's other people out there like Sherry Goodman that have been talking about uh, for a long time about that sort of force multiplier, the sort of effect um, of either scarcity of water or too much water, which is, you know, driven by climate change. So there's some really interesting, Kendra mentioned it earlier, just even from the applications from security to conservation, carbon, you know, we can we can go on and on and on about all of the different ways of using data. Um, but I won't go down any more rabbit holes. I'll leave it. I'll leave it there. No, that's great. And, and, you know, it's, it's just so interesting. Like the ocean touches all of us and we don't necessarily, it's, you know, when, when you're terrestrial based, you see things, you touch them. The ocean is something that is, um, so important to all of our livelihoods, whether we know it or not, whether we live next to the ocean or not. It is the largest global cache of, of carbon in the world. And it is the key to climate change. Jessica, I want to come to you and just have you comment on what you've heard around the data side, because you and your organization are leaders in this space. So give us a few words or, or talk to us a little bit about uh, your thoughts on the data side. Sure. Um, I'm not a data specialist, but um, just over the 10 years of being at Ocean Networks Canada, I will say that there's a very small amount of the ocean that we really understand. And so in my, for me personally, I think, I feel as though if industry's holding ocean data, um, that is not usable for them any longer, it should be open sourced. Um, and maybe there's sensitivities that on some of that, that, that they can't share, which is fine. But there's also, you know, areas of data that we collect that are sensitive, such as First Nation communities that we work with um, who are collecting data and we hold their data, but we don't make it public. So there are definitely um, situations where um, we work with partners where we fence off the data. Uh, another example would be, you know, when we're working with startup technology companies who are using our um, observatory to to start looking at the data of their new product before commercialization and wanting to tweak it or look at the data to see how it's working. So obviously that kind of data is not accessible or or and, and is fenced off. But I mean, the one point five petabyte data, I don't even think there's enough scientists in the world to be able to analyze that that amount of data at this point in time. So um yeah, so I I I I would say that we continue as an organization to talk about open data. Um Scott and I have had some pretty pointy conversations about data, which I fully understand that companies need, you know, that's their product and their service and that's what they need to so totally understand that perspective. Um, but for a science community uh, and looking at changes over time, data is is invaluable. Totally agree. Totally agree. 
I want to lift up a little bit um, from from specifics, and I want to go to Kendra because Kendra, you have been at this with the with Canada's Ocean Supercluster for nearly five years. You are seeing the blue economy in Canada from a national perspective, and I'm interested to hear from you what you think BC's role in Canada's blue economy is and where you think they can win uh, in this space. Yeah, so I think um, I think the opportunity is tremendous. I think the growth that I've seen even the five years in my role, I was reflecting earlier on my first trip uh, to British Columbia and it was you know, a very small crowd. There's a lot of skepticism as to the opportunity and our ability to work together as a country. And then I had the opportunity to be back in Victoria. There's another plane. Um, so hopefully you can hear me. Back in Victoria in September, the room was full. The energy was high. The excitement around the opportunity. And from a cluster perspective, we have now over 80 members that are in British Columbia. So they're the third largest group of members. If you look at the size of the population in BC, right, and the, the people and the, the tech sector and the clean tech sector, there's so much capability that already exists there that we can um, that we can build on. You've got Coast now, you've got the Vancouver Maritime Center for Climate and their push around green shipping. There was an announcement yesterday um, at COP around green shipping in terms of Canada's role. So I think that opportunity is tremendous. We're seeing some really interesting projects. Our first Indigenous commercial partner was on a was on a project uh, in British Columbia. And here, you know, Washington State is very interested. They'll collaborate with all of Canada, but geographically, Washington State, super close to British Columbia, California, same time zone. They are really interested in what's happening in British Columbia and their ability to be able to collaborate uh, with companies. So I think there's just... There's nowhere to go here but continuing to build momentum and opportunity. And, and I think the biggest trick is there's lots of things happening in the BC economy. So how do we make sure this has the attention and the awareness um, for our tech companies so that they're actually focused on the ocean economy? Thanks, Kendra. Yeah, so many exciting. And, and when you talk about that cluster of organizations with the ONCs, the the COAST, the VMCCs, um, you know, there's there's communities like Port Alberni uh, in, in on Vancouver Island that are really eyeing the blue economy as an opportunity as well, and and you just see it starting to proliferate and grow. Scott, can I come to you as as an Sorry, innovator? maybe I'll just just a couple oh, oh, a couple other things. Sorry, um, yeah, that I should mention. So, Startup Genome just did their report. Vancouver was already 14th in terms of startup activity. So, I think that demonstrates again a tremendous opportunity. And you would know recently with the startup project. We had a huge amount of BC companies that um, that applied, and I think eight out of 30 are British Columbia-based winners. So just a couple more examples. Sorry, I don't have Nancy's notes in front of me, but I know there's a couple more examples of um, some of the amazing opportunities that we have and some of the stats around British Columbia and, and the growth that we've seen. I'll never stop you from plugging the Ocean Startup Project. So there you go. That was, that was wonderful. But, uh, yeah, it, it is really – it's fantastic to see – how many um, it, how many applications we received and how many successful applicants we got from British Columbia? It really it grew 233 percent uh, this year. So 
huge, huge momentum. And we're, we're only going to see more of that as, as we move along here. Scott, coming to you, just where do you think BC wins? Where do you think focus should go, uh, in, in, in this ecosystem? Well, let's quickly address this data topic first. So, uh, you know, everybody starts talking about data and that, uh, um, there are some opinions that all data should be public, but of course there's privacy concerns with that. Um, what I want to say is as a company, we are inspired by the CubeSat companies that have deployed thousands of satellites in space and provided not only daily pictures of the earth, but insights and analytics and intelligence products from that data. And so that's where we see a major opportunity is converting data into in, insights. And that's kind of leads to what Kendra was saying as well. We're seeing some um, change in procurement practice with NOAA, where they're interested in potentially procuring data sources from companies uh, like um, Sail Drone and Liquid Robotics early blue tech success stories. Um, we, I think where things are going is that um, there needs to be an acknowledgement and a true assessment of what the real opportunities are in data, whether that's fully public data or whether that's a data monetization. And I think those things can fit together. And I think we need some kind of a group to go to sit down and talk about that and have the right government agencies in place as well. The reason I'm saying this is, um, you know, if you think about people paying for, let's just say Microsoft Word, <clears throat> you pay a monthly subscription fee for that. You're not going to go and have a team create Microsoft Word on your own. You're just going to pay monthly. And we all kind of, oh, it's tough, but the, at the end of the day, it works and it's working well. And uh, if you ask a government agency or a sub agency of, a, of some kind of um, nonprofit, to create Microsoft Word to then use it, it would be just slowing down everything. So there is a place for innovation and for some level of value that comes from the collection and uh, of data. And so I, th I think we need to sit down and address this one head on. And I'd be excited to do that. So that's that's from my point of view uh, where things should go. It's the next big unanswered question. I love it. I love it and totally agree. Um, there's, there's just so much opportunity there, but there's so many issues and maybe that's a great coast project too, to get the people, the right people around the table to start having that conversation. Cause I think that's a, it's, it's really important and timely on that side of things. Um, folks, I just want to ask a question now about our indigenous communities. And I have had the pleasure of spending time with people like Chief Planus in um, on Vancouver Island. And what I am appreciating and appreciating more and more is the relationship of so many Indigenous communities with ocean. And so, Jessica, I want to come to you and, and get your perspective on on that relationship and how we incorporate so much of this incredible indigenous knowledge into the growth of the blue economy. Yeah. And I was glad that Scott got to speak to, to data. Um, so thanks Scott for bringing that back. Um, so for Ocean Networks Canada, we work with multiple communities along, well, along our coast in British Columbia, but up in the Arctic and on the East coast as well. 
Um, and what we're learning more and more, um, well, first of all, I'll just explain that when we, in 2012, we went up to the Arctic and we were putting, we wanted to see if we could put sensors up in the Arctic in the harsh environment. And when we uh, connected with the community up there in Cambridge Bay, they asked us, we're interested in understanding the ice thickness because our traditional knowledge, understanding and our you know, with climate change, we aren't, it's unpredictable now. And so we thought, well, we could put that on. So we added a sea ice thickness monitoring device. Um, and that data is now in their co-op store and it provides them the certainty of whether today they can cross the ice or not. But that was really the beginning of Ocean Networks Canada recognizing that not only are these these information important for science. Um, it's really the communities that are seeing the changes and want to have the information uh, so that they can make their own decisions and understand the changing climate. So that launched this whole idea for us of these community observatories or another program that we call community fishers, which is going, which, which is really asking the community, what is it that you're interested in learning? And some are interested in, you know, um, shipping traffic. Some are interested in noise. Some are interested in having a video so that they engage their youth. Um, but it becomes a partnership whereby the data is really their data. We operate and maintain it, but it's really, we, we help with, um, um, you know, with proposal writing to access the funding so that First Nation communities can then have their own data that they are in control of. And then on top of that, what we've what we've learned is that um, they're really interested in having their youth um, engaged with it, with the data. So understanding what's going on. And so we have a whole team at Ocean Networks Canada that's um, focused on these kinds of engagements and developing um, training modules and so forth. And that has just been such. So anytime we, we start a project on the coast, we always look to the community that is owns that territory of, of water. Yeah, so so important. Emily, I'm coming to you with the same question. You have the Indigenous Prosperity Center with SIP. You have Coast. Talk to us about how we, um, how you're thinking about this same, this same topic. Yeah, I think, um, and, and I saw there's a question also in the chat on this topic too. So unfortunately, we didn't have anyone today, uh, any of ever Indigenous partners that could make the panel today. But um, from the very beginning, uh, we we were working with um, uh, some Indigenous leadership, in particular Chief Planets, whom you mentioned, the Chief of Salk Nation, um, and he's been involved as a founder of Coast from the outset. Um, and um, and so we've always had that as a sort of major priority area. But what what we were finding through Coast is that it's not something it, it also needs its own self-directed perspective and so on. So I'll tell you actually something about more about IPC, the Indigenous Prosperity Center than Coast. So I'll, I'll change it over to there. So what we were doing, um, uh, working with our, our Indigenous partners, looking at for about really the last, again, 18 months or so, Coming out of the pandemic, we we had uh, struck this group um, that was Indigenous-led um, called the Indigenous Economy Committee, looking at what are some ways to move our economy, to rebound the economy and to move from relief to recovery and build more resilience 
Um, and so that that committee um, put, did a lot of consultations and engagement. And, came, and one of the recommendations was to create a standalone um, sort of economic development focused a center organization, um, which is which sort of gave rise to the Indigenous Prosperity Center, and we now, uh, who, which is led now by Christina Clark, the executive director. Um, and so, essentially, what happened over the last, uh, I'd say, eighteen months, there was a lot of ec- more consultation around sort of what are some areas of priority and focus, and all of the nations in the South Island are ten. They're very different. They have very different economic objectives and um, different cultures, et cetera. So what we found, though, was that what brought them together, there was an area of commonality, was was the ocean. And, and that's because, you know, if you think about it, um, there's a relationship with the ocean that, it, you know, they're a deep, deep cultural uh, relationship with the ocean that goes back thousands of years. BC's First Nations are very coastal based, primarily coastal based. Um, and so whether or not the ocean was, you know, viewed as sort of a place of transportation, of diplomacy, of uh, the breadbasket, um, sort of the highway, like all of these different concepts that that are economic in some dimension, um, they're they're really a priority of all of the nations that we consulted with. So fast forward, um, as now the Indigenous Prosperity Center now has its own leadership and it's starting to really develop its plan and do engagement and look at areas of, of common, um, common capacity development and, and advocacy and also, um, information sharing, like some of the best practices that are already occurring. So as that's sort of kicking off and, um, and going, we've also, through the Ocean Startup Project, um, been been really tremendously fortunate to be able to hire an Indigenous ocean ecosystem navigator to start just assessing sort of what doing the engagement, looking at what are the opportunities uh, for entrepreneurship, for venture creation, um, what are some of the self-driven, self-directed and identified priorities that our Indigenous uh, partners um, would have. So, so this is kind of early days. We're just sort of starting this out and exploring. Uh, there's a big appetite for it. Uh, obviously, there's a whole bunch of different sectors that this could apply to. We also have a, a pilot that we're um, currently just finishing the sort of planning stage of it. Um, and it's called the uh, an Indigenous uh, Procurement Accelerator Pilot. And so what we'd like to do here is assess the sort of huge amount of demand um, as we as we now know with the legislation with um, federal government, there's a requirement to hold back a certain percentage of five percent for projects that are over two million dollars in value. So there's actually a lot of opportunity in the ocean and marine sector for indigenous partners to be able to uh, accelerate their economies. Uh, what we really need to look at is. What do what do people first want to do uh, instead of just bringing, you know, here's some opportunities that might not be the ones that they want. So then at that point, it's about how do we accelerate those ventures that are that are driven by the indigenous people. So mm-hmm. I, I'm hesitant to do any more speaking for anybody else that's not on this, this panel. And I wish we could have had more of our our, our partners join us. Definitely. Definitely. No, uh, thanks for that, Emily. Really appreciate it. Folks, I want to get to a couple of questions. Hopefully that question, that answer from Emily answered one of the questions that was in the chat. But I want to go to a, a another question in the chat, and I'm going to push this to you first, Kendra, and then I'm coming to you, Jessica, on it. The question is, one major area of opportunity for Pacific Canada is aquaculture, but we've heard there are regulatory barriers that prevent us from achieving our potential here. 
What's the role of organizations like the Supercluster, Coast, and Ocean Networks Canada in unleashing that potential? So, Kendra, it's a it's a loaded question, but can you can you give us an idea of your sense of of, of what what Supercluster and other organizations can do to help on that side? Um, yeah. So I, I thought uh, so. We had an event in Halifax. And uh, Christy Walton got up and spoke, um, and uh, she is a big advocate of aquaculture and has a number of investments. And one of the things that she said is we need to educate to move away from this outdated understanding of what is aquaculture. And that is a role that the supercluster can play. It's around the education in terms of the opportunity, what that looks like. Um, what it means for communities. We have a number of Indigenous partners that are involved in aquaculture. For example, um, when you look at, there's fin fish aquaculture, there's, you know, you look at seaweed and where that's going and that whole conversation. So how do we change the conversation, increase the understanding? Um, and so we are actually looking at how do we, so, so sustainable seafood is one of our pillars as we roll into the second phase of the supercluster. Um, it is clear globally that the growth opportunity is in aquaculture and fish processing. And Canada has a clear choice to make. And what's also interesting to me is, you know, if we bring it on land, which is kind of the discussion, let's get it out of the water, let's put it on land. Canada actually loses it's a competitive advantage if we put it on land because we're not close to the people, right? So our advantage is our cold water. And so we just really need to make sure people understand all the facets of the conversation as we're having that conversation. And that's where the supercluster can hopefully uh, play more of a role. Thanks, Kendra. That's a great answer. Jessica, you are a government relations person, so I'm coming <laughs> to you. We've got the perfect person to, to jump in on this. Where do you see ONC falling on it? Mm. On, on that question. Well, right now we're working in Bain Sound where there's uh, a significant amount of um, sea f- or, uh, uh, shellfish aquaculture. And so our big part of it is really the monitoring and providing the data and the changing ocean that causes that um, industry to um, be less successful really with the ocean acidification it's been challenging for um that industry so we really fit in the monitoring space and delivering the data so that then scientists can can share their findings and um we're trying to develop um sort of an alert system that could help with the aquaculture farmers in that area to know when there's acidic bodies of water that come into this into the area so that they don't use that particular um, ocean water for for harvest or starting up their their spat, I believe it's called the the baby um, crustaceans. So that's one area that we could start looking at. But the other partnership that we've been working with is um, with seafood aquaculture, um, and just the again the monitoring and helping to figure out what the best way to cultivate and grow seaweed um, in a sustainable and fast um, way. So Cascadia Seaweed is one of the companies here on the coast of British Columbia that we've been working with. Um, And their model is really amazing. I don't know if, again, it's bringing back that First Nation component to it of it's a business model that really brings the community into the business um, of, of seaweed aquaculture. 
Yeah, yeah. There's yeah, I mean, la- la- sorry, example. last comment. It, it needs to be sustainable. So the investments in sustainable aquaculture technologies around the world is huge, and that's, that is the thing that we need to address is where there are sustainability concerns, environmental monitoring, die-offs, all the things we need to address. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's exactly. I, I'm totally with both of you on that. I, I think those those are really important points. And and, you know, I think seaweed is struggling from a, a bit of a regulatory issue as well. Like I've talked to Mark Smith at the Pacific Seaweed Association. The folks at Cascadia are just doing really, really innovative, interesting work and 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 bringing in indigenous communities to that, too. And and we need to find ways to help those companies get through those barriers and and figure out how we can how we can talk and and explain it and educate the right people to to get those things those things moving. Folks, we're running out of time. I would love to talk to you all day, but I want to come to each of you just for a final word. What are you most excited about about British Columbia's blue economy in the next year or two? Emily, I'm not starting with you because I know your answer. Scott Beatty, what are what are you most excited about seeing uh, out of the blue economy in BC in the next few years? <clears throat> Well, um, I mean, a couple things. One of them is that uh, barriers are starting to get broken down with uh, aligning different government agencies, different funders. We've seen uh, Western economic diversification change to Pacific Can be a little bit more or a lot more ocean focused. It's a great news. We've seen a few other things. So that's all gaining momentum. So that's just generally awesome for uh, for the startup and innovation ecosystem. So I'm really excited about that. And I'm also excited to see Coast take that next step and get uh, get a location and, and have um, have some companies in there and have some events. And um, so, so, yeah, some humble, smaller things, but I think they're great steps. And uh, yeah. so I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, those building blocks are so important. Jessica, you only have a couple of seconds. I'm I, gonna I'm jumping in with you here. Sure. I would say we were really excited at Ocean Networks Canada to hear about the renewal of the Oceans Protection Plan. So that was really good news. Um and then the blue economy is supposed to be coming out through the federal government as well. I think we're all waiting to hear what that entails. But um yeah, some good programs that are coming out. I I agree with Scott. Okay. Emily, I'm not coming to you, and Kendra, I'm not coming to you because I'm going to just say, I think, what you would say, but we we are out of time. Uh, Coast is obviously hugely exciting, and the building blocks getting put in place and, and watching this community come together. And then with the supercluster, there's five more years of funding coming down the pipeline to do more great work and help us build and focus this nation on, on the ocean. So uh, really exciting. So, folks, uh, we have to get out of here. Thank you all. Uh, thank you, Scott, Jessica, oh, Kendra, and uh, and Emily. Really, really appreciate your time. A big thank you to Times Colonist for uh, sponsoring this important conversation. And thank you to our presenting sponsor, RBC, and our Catalyst sponsor, Van City, for supporting Rise Econ- Rising Economy 2022. Um, and uh, we encourage all of the attendees to head back to the Whova platform. So thank you, folks. Really, really appreciate the time today. And that was fun. And I just can't wait to see how big this blue economy gets in British Columbia. Thanks so much. Thanks, Thanks everyone. everyone. Thanks, everybody.